is That Stack of Books. I'm Steve Scher. I'm Nancy Pearl. I'm Katie Sewell. And a room full of people <laughs> here to discuss political books today. And I just I want to start with an, an IRNA. We're recording this on November 3rd, Election Day, most parts of the state. What was the t statistic I last read? Uh, off your elections, local elections, 28%, I think, people vote. Did you vote today? Eyes? Aye. Nays? That's because you're readers, and readers take an interest in the world. So I would expect nothing less. That's exactly right. You, you, um, you had this idea for political books, and oh, you brought two? I did. I did bring two, but I want to talk about, very briefly, four, because I want to talk about two really important... You know, Nancy, we have had sort of a cap on people talking about too many books at one time, but I'll let, we'll, we'll let you go. You could edit it out, Steve. <laughs> so uh, there, there are two novels that I, th I personally think that everyone should read, and one of them is um, uh, uh, William, what's his name, Penn Warren. Robert Penn, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, which is just um, just really a political primer for, for uh, and a wonderful, wonderful book, a wonderful read. And the second novel, I think some people are going to um, not believe I'm suggesting this, but I, I really think that Advising Consent by Alan Drury was a really important political book. And he went a little off the rails politically, I, for my taste, after this book and his subsequent books. But Advice and Consent gives a picture of a working government um, where, where, where the good of the country, for the most part, is put ahead of any sectarian um, disagreements. And, it's, and plus, it's just a darn good novel. And I, I, would, I would really suggest going back to it. And if you haven't read it, trying it or even giving it a reread. So if it were to be written today, it would be complain and oppose. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. And, and interestingly enough, I mean, it's a really, it's, a, it's a, just a very, it's a very um, startlingly accurate picture of the 1950s and the 1960s, um, both politically and sociologically. Um, the, the South, the Southern senator, you know, there's, uh, everything is in there. It's just a terrific novel. Did, did anybody read the New York Times this weekend about Eisenhower and the first political commercials and how Ike, Ike didn't really have to be convinced too much to sell himself in one minute. They were, they were very short. They were just a minute long uh, commercials. That was interesting. Well, and then I brought two nonfiction books, which I suppose some people could argue are not really political, but I would say they are political. They're both brand new. The first one is called The Prize by an, a Washington Post reporter named Dale Rusikoff, and the subtitle of that is Who's in Charge of America's Schools? And this is the account of um, what happened to the Newark Public Schools following Mark Zuckerberg donating $100 million to radically change the schools, um, you know, um, aligning himself along with Chris Christie and um, the mayor, Cory Booker, now the senator from New Jersey, um, aligning themselves with the school reformers in, in favor of um, uh, charter schools and, and uh, really decimating the public school system. And what's fascinating about this book is how wrong those three men were. 
and it seems as up to this point that only Mark Zuckerberg seems to have learned something because he just made a, another huge donation, $120 million, he and his wife, to the Oakland school system, but this time to add a health facility along with, with the schools. Because what's, what, what, what Dale Rusikoff makes so clear in here and what so many of the teachers and the parents in Newark knew is that education is not separate from quality of life. Mm -hmm. And to not deal with the health issues, the, 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 the violence, the trauma, the poverty, the, the you know, just overwhelming poverty in Newark. And that there are, school, there are public school teachers and public school, you know, uh, public schools in Newark that are doing as, as, as wonderful a job as some people hope that the charter schools would do. I, I'm, and it's just so readable. I highly recommend this book. So you're saying that the people that didn't get a sense are still touting the idea of charter schools and supporting charter schools around the country, this state included? Yes, indeed. And uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's not political. <laughs> I bet we could, have a, we could have a discussion right there about that. Did you ever read the book Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun by Jeffrey Canada? Uh, no, I did not. So that was, Jeffrey Canada was, uh, is an educator, and he supports the idea of charter schools for the same reasons you just gave, because he said that schools needed to be full service in entities, and the government wasn't providing that. And so that's why he launched his private school initiative, of which he's been very successful. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's hard to be against charter, well, you could be against charter schools, but but not if they work the way they were intended to work. You know the way the first people who really talked about them before they were taken over politically and made a real real political issue. I, I think they can do great things. I mean, my my objection to charter schools is is that the public school system is something that one of the one of the few entities that makes our country a democracy. I don't know if Zuckerberg actually has learned his lesson because I just read a couple days ago that he has given a huge donation to start a private school in East Palo Alto. It will be free, but it's private, so he's not investing in the East Palo Alto school system. That was Judy, by the way. Yes, I read that too. I and and it could be that that's the one that has the the. Um, um, Health, health care attached to it. I'm not. I'm not sure. It did just seem like he wrote a, a you know, hundred million dollar check and and you know it disappeared. And she lists at the end of the book what it all went for. And very, very, very little of it went to stu You know, to 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 the lives of students. It went to, it went to um, administration and you know bureaucracy. It's it's a terrible. You come away from this book, no matter, no matter what you thought of the politicians before you read this book, neither of the two politicians involved in this, Booker, Cory Booker, or um, Chris Christie, are, come across as heroes in the education movement, to say the least. And the other book, I'm so excited about this book because, and I, well, not excited, I'm just cast in despair about this book. This is a book, you could edit out the so excited. Um, 
it's called Give Us the Ballot by Ar- I mentioned that whenever you say you can edit out, I never, never do. Never do. <laughs> I've noticed that, Steve. Um, Give Us the Ballot by Ari Berman, The Modern Struggle, the modern struggle for Voting Rights in America. And um, this is one of the only books about the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which Johnson passed, got passed immediately after very close upon the passage of the Civil Rights, uh, the Civil Rights Act, and how the recent Supreme Court decision um, really destroyed two of the major sections of the Voting Rights Act. And it was so interesting when you when you look at who voted for the Civil Rights Act. Um, Republican senators from the North were big supporters of that. When you look at every single Southern state, Democrat or Republican, all voted against it. And what the Roberts Court did was really take all the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act. And so, um, I, this this is he's right, Ari Berman, when, when he says there has not been a lot of attention paid to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And and you know the the famous famous line was that Johnson, when it became clear it was going to pass, Johnson turned to Bill Moyers and said, well, we've given the South to the Republicans for the next, you know, number of generations. And indeed, (laughs) that happened. Um, It's a noble story of African Americans trying to, trying to vote and, and being stopped at the gates of, of the voting booth, both during, you know, after Reconstruction, during the, the, the Jim Crow era, and now especially as he goes into great deal, detail about North Carolina and what they're doing to prevent um, African Americans from voting. And of course, not just uh, being stopped at the gate, right, yes. but being murdered for their efforts. Yes. You, you were mentioning David Domke. Um, Susan, you mentioned David Domke, University of Washington professor, who takes people down to the south on these civil rights pilgrimages and we have met because these people are now in their 70s and 80s we have met those people who had to stand up for that and suffered you know loss of life from family members and and attacks and it is an amazing story yeah and and i think that you know one of the heroes of this book and 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 the man who is probably in the most despair about it is john lewis who, who, um, you know, and and one another thing I learned from this book, which I hadn't realized, but you probably know, Steve, from your trip there, was that there were actually three marches from Selma to Birmingham, and John Lewis was, um, you know, in this, uh, the first one was where, you know, so bloody, and the second one was where Governor Wallace um, had had proclaimed, you know, he had put up an injunction against a march, and Martin Luther King called off the march. And then the third one, which finally um, the president sent in federal troops to protect the marchers. It's a, it's, it's just, I, I don't want this history to be forgotten. And um, I think it's just so important that we, that we, you know, that we read this and we think about it and we do what we can to, to, to change the world. You remind me of a book, an older book, that was about that, this little light of mine. It's the story of Fannie Lou Hamer. Of course, Fannie Lou Hamer was, that's what she was doing, was registering rural uh, Mississippians to vote and, and being harassed for it, and then being called up by the, by the activists to form that other Democratic Party in Mississippi. 
because she was a voting rights activist. I was at the University of Michigan um, in 1965, and a lot of my friends went to Mississippi to be Freedom Riders, and I was supposed to go. And I, and for some reason, which I for years and years and years never understood, I ended up not going, and always felt terrible that I didn't go. And then I, and then. I don't know how it even came up, but my father said, you didn't go, years later, decades later, he said, you didn't go because your mother told you she would have a heart attack if you did, and you, and you stayed home. I know. <laughs> right, and the guilt that I felt as a result of not doing that. Anyway. That's funny, a lot of the people that are on these trips, that's why they're going, because they didn't go in 1965 and now they feel like this is their job. One character, one African-American woman in this book says um, that, that when, they're, when they're doing the marches, the recent marches, protests in North Carolina, says, she said, I skipped the civil rights movement and I always regretted that. I want to be arrested for this. Uh, that's great. Who else has political books? This is Christopher. I was wondering if a good pairing might be the new John Lewis book, uh, Walking with the Wind. Have you read that? And yeah, I have not read that, I, I, and I would be interested. Have you read it? I haven't yet. It's next on my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if, could I follow up on the education as well? Uh, reading that book, you're obviously well read on the topic of education reform. Why is it so hard? Did you pick up any insights out of that book about why so many smart, rich, well-intentioned people for decades on either side of the issue are having such a hard time making a difference? I, I think because, uh, partly I think because the problems are so endemic to our society that it's, it's, it's it, I think it was, um, I can't, oh, Bertolt Brecht who said, first comes the food, then comes morality. And you know, we haven't even, these kids are starving, you know. 83% of the kids, something like that, high percentage qualify for free lunches. So I think that, I mean, it's 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 partly the 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 kind of attitude that if you throw money at something, that's got to make it better, without understanding that it's the whole student, that it's one student at a time that you have to, um, that you have to help and you and you have to help succeed. And there's heartbreaking stories in Dale Rusakoff's book about kids who do, do have those wonderful teachers in elementary school who get them through and you know make sure they can read and you know get them to high school and then in high school there's not that support system set up. But um, I, I, I think a really good book about it about the whole education issue and the reformers is Diane Ravitch's. Book. Do you, I don't remember the title of it, but she was one of those early, early supporters of school reform and charter schools, and now she's changed her mind. And I think that would give a good. My sense is is that it's just it's such a it's such there's such um, at the heart of our country there is such there's so many deep problems that we're not addressing. Well. I would concur with that. We did a couple of crosscut panels this last year on on education, why CL couldn't keep a superintendent, what the difficulty was in creating charter schools. And when you look at the statistics, 
prenatal to three to five years old. Invest there and whatever else changes, whatever else happens in the schools, outcomes are better. So it is, it's the whole person. And when we, but we put everything on the school. We demand that the school teacher and the school nurse and the school principal do all the social things that, that we as a society refuse to do. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think too, um, and maybe I'm just being um, influenced by um, Tanisi Coates and all of that he's been saying, um, but I, I just think that we don't give enough credence to the trauma that many of these kids growing up in, the, in, in these urban ghettos have, have gone through mm -hmm. um, and how hard it is to, um, to educate without dealing with some of that trauma at least. And, and you know, there's no will in this country to hire social workers to help these kids in enough numbers. I'm pretty down today. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty political, uh, I guess it's political books. Let's see, The Death and Life of the Great American Education System, Reign of Error, Left Back, A Century of Battles Over School Reform. Diane Rabbits has been writing a lot. We could do a whole show just yeah. on school books. Because um, uh, there are a lot of people who have written about, about education that, that have written some great books recently. Who else? I'm Roz, and I have read John Lewis's Walking with the Wind. It's probably the most emotionally powerful book that I have read. I read it this year that I've read in years. It's an amazing book. I was really just kind of overwhelmed by it emotionally for weeks after reading it, so I highly recommend it. But the book I brought today, I just finished The Sacred Willow, Four Generations in the Life of a Vietnamese Family. Um, which again is a pretty amazing story. Is it about politics? Absolutely. I mean, it's Vietnam from 1930 to 1995, and it's U.S. politics, it's French politics, it's Southeast Asian politics of all kinds. Uh, you know, the corruption, the wars, the mistreatment of people. It's kind of amazing what people can do to other people. So this is written by um, Dong Van. My Elliot, she uh, was born in 1941 in Vietnam, grew up mostly in North Vietnam, although her family went to the South after a while. She um, and many of her relatives, she actually married an American, so she's been in the United States. She came, went to uh, college at Georgetown, so she became Americanized, but some of her family never got out of Vietnam, and she's been back several times to interview them for this book and has relatives in a lot of countries, but it's about all the struggles that that country has been through and how it's been influenced by corrupt nations, politics, <laughs> and so forth. I think we had her as a guest, you know, to speak at the library in the, in the, um, in the early 2000s. Very soon after I got to the library, I think we invited her. This is Tom, and Nancy said she had the quintessential <laughs> fiction book about politics. I would say this is the quintessential nonfiction book about politics. Robert Caro's The Passage of Power about Lyndon Johnson's ascent to the presidency. So is that the first one? The second one? This is actually the fourth one. That's the fourth one. The See, fourth already, one in his this, series. So this is when he's... Uh, now he's president. He's just he's Senate? just he's just left the Senate, and has agreed at the beginning has agreed to run for vice president. 
This yeah. book takes him through the 1960 election when he was he was the Southern uh, strategy for the Kennedy election. Uh, he uh, held a number of the Southern states for the Democrats in, in that election, and that's basically why he was made the vice presidential candidate. Then it moves on to the assassination, and the description of Johnson during the assassination is just marvelous. It's just wonderful how you could see this affect him nearly instantly. And within hours, he knew exactly what he was going to do, according to Cairo, when he became president. Have you interviewed Carol? Yeah. Robin? One thing about Carol, unlike other writers of nonfiction books, sometimes you can tell when somebody's um, had a lot of researchers helping them write the book, because they really don't know the, they don't know the subject. If you dig a little too deeply into it, they're not going to remember. And they're going to have to look at the book, or they're going to have to fake an answer. That guy knew everything. That guy had, he remembered everything he had written and he had more stories that would, that would jump out as you talked to him. I was just amazed at how well-versed, well-immersed he was. But of course, what's it been now, 20, has it been almost 30 years that he's been writing those books? Yes. And he's yeah. still got at least one more? Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, the other thing that I, I think comes through, which, which I believe is true, although there may be arguments about it, you know, we talk, we've talked here about how you can't believe an autobiography, it's going to be incredibly biased. And even biographies are often very biased. But I think Cairo really tries to be as even-handed about his topics as he can be. And he, I think he presents Johnson very fairly and with an open mind. He brings out all the good aspects of Johnson, of which there were many, and he also brings out all the bad aspects of the man, of which also were many, but I think he's quite a fair and even-handed about it. Yeah, it really is a great book. If you want to know American politics, those are great books to read. Well, Steve, what about those old ones, um, The Making of the President? Remember how good those were? I sometimes think we should go back and reread those, because it, you know, if, if only for nostalgia <laughs> about how it was before <laughs> social media, etc. Was that Schlesinger? No. no. White. White, that's yeah. right. Theodore White yeah. wrote those. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Boy, I haven't thought about those books in a while. Who else? Political books? Robin, that is a totally um, prescient book considering the movie that's coming out, right? This is a timely book. It's Dalton Trumbo, Blacklisted Hollywood Radical by Larry Sapler, a historian and his, uh, Trumbo's late son, uh, Christopher Trumbo. And uh, there is a movie coming out this month starring Brian Cranston as Dalton Trumbo. And Trumbo, of course, I don't think he's a household name, but he was an award-winning uh, screenwriter and novelist. He was uh, probably, he's probably most remembered for his uh, refusal to uh, testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947, and he uh, would not name names. He had been a member of the Communist Party. He joined in 1943 and dropped out in 48 after, but he was uh, charged with contempt and spent a year in jail, and then he was blacklisted from 1947 to 1960, so ostensibly he couldn't work in Hollywood, but he had a couple of bruises. He 
he used fronts and he also used pseudonyms to write screenplays and he actually won Academy Awards after the blacklist period for writing Roman Holiday and for The Brave One. He broke the blacklist. Uh, he was the first blacklisted writer to be uh, publicly uh, recognized with Spartacus and Exodus in the same year, 1960. And part of that was with the, the help of Otto Preminger with Exodus. He's really an amazing guy. He was irascible. He struggled to become a writer. And, and as Robin said, on any list of anti-war novels, uh, you, you have to put Johnny Got His Gun if not at the top, close to the top. It's just a book that's so, punch, um, has such an emotional punch. Um, it's unforgettable. This is Judy, Ill Fares the Land by Tony Jutt. And I dearly love Tony Jutt. I think he's a fabulous, was, he's unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago, but uh, wonderful writer. And it's a very slim book and it takes kind of a big picture look at why this country is in such bad shape politically, socially, economically. He was British originally, and he is, I think of him as what Bernie Sanders would call a democratic socialist, and he's, Judd is very proud of that strain of thinking and of political economy, so he, that's his lens but he takes a look at our country from that lens. Here, here's the glorious thing about reading, is that my favorite novel of Jess Walters is about the Carter-Reagan election and about a guy who has been um, in prison uh, and, and can't vote, and now he's in witness protection in Spokane, working at a little donut shop and you know, doing a little scams on the side. Um, <laughs> And he, um, and he has to decide, he gets very excited about the election. And, and the whole book, although much else happens, and he's, you know, John Gotti is involved in the plot. He goes back to New Jersey. But, um, but he, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. But it builds up to that, this wonderful last scene when he walks into the voting booth. It's a f and so look at that, I mean, that can take you there and then Jess Walter can take you to, you know, many other places and then Tim Egan has a new book coming out this next year and I mean, all these, it just goes, it's just so fabulous. This is Katie. I was reminded um, in this discussion, not of a book, but because not all writers are lucky enough to get their stuff published officially, but I was reminded of Norman Corwin, who was a director and producer and writer during radio's golden age. And I think he would be interesting for people to look up around this discussion just because he, um, we forget where a lot of these patriotic ideas that we have come from. And he was pretty much the guy that helped shape how people felt about World War II uh, during the war. He was hired to put it into a context and turn it into poetry, really. And his, uh, his show called on a note of triumph. Y if you listen back to that, you'll find that a lot of the same messages that people hold up when they're being patriotic appear in that and were created out of World War II by him as a writer. Hi, this is Judy, another Judy. Um, just for a complete change of pace, I have been reading a number of books, uh, particularly novels, on the Tudor court. 
Now, if you want to see, if you want to know politics in their most brutal form, read about the Tudors. Uh, but politics haven't changed. It's who you know, how you can get ahead of somebody to put yourself forward. Um, and of course, it was a little more lethal back then because the king had the ultimate power. But uh, politics have uh, not really changed in essence since the days of the Tudors. Okay, I have a political question to end this with. Amazon's opening a brick and mortar store. Have any uh, thoughts on that, Nancy Pearl? I personally, I'm glad, because University Village, that shopping center in Seattle, boring. So at least there'll be a bookstore there. Um, my feelings are that, as from what I've read about it, the books that they're gonna carry are, are their um, you know, customer rated 4.5 to 5 point reviews. And I am unalterably against um, and dislike crowdsourced reviews. I, I just think, given all that we know about the way people manipulate those reviews on Amazon, which is, you know, that news is no news to anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, to base a bookstore's, you know, stuff on that, just, um, that just troubles me. All right, then. Thank you all. Thanks for being here.